Hi everybody, I'm Michael Davis. Welcome to Bone to Pick and we are coming to you today from the Manhattan School of Music here on West 122nd Street in New York City. We are extremely fortunate today to uh, have our featured guest for this month, the great Justin DeChocho. Uh, Justin is internationally recognized as one of the leading jazz educators of our time. Uh, his creative and inventive approach has earned him the title the musician's teacher. In 2001, he was inducted into the Jazz Educators Hall of Fame. Uh, he is currently the Associate Dean and Chair of the Jazz Arts Program here at Man the Manhattan School of Music, and he has been on the faculty here since 1984. Under Justin's leadership, the uh, Manhattan School has restructured its jazz curriculum, uh, creating a jazz doctorate program, uh, also expanding and creating a uh, pre-college jazz division. He is the recipient of numerous awards and honors. Uh, he developed and directed the internationally renowned LaGuardia High School of the Arts Jazz Program. He's also the director and creator of the Grammy Jazz Band, an all-American jazz band, an incredible program that we will talk about in a bit. Uh, additionally, a former member of the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, and something I'm looking forward to talking about. He spent five years in the uh, Marine President's Own Marine Band, and was the uh, official White House drummer, so I'm sure he's got some good stories on that one. Uh, he received his Bachelor's of Music degree from the Eastman School of Music, his Master's degree here at the Manhattan School. He hails from the wonderful city of Buffalo, New York, and it's an honor to have you, Justin. Thanks for taking time out of what is an incredibly busy schedule, so I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Mike. It's an honor. Well, it's, our, it's totally our honor. Well, let's jump in. We're here at one of the most prestigious uh, music conservatories anywhere in the world. Let's Let's just have you talk about all the work you've done. I mean, you've uh, grown this program just immensely, and I've watched it as uh, as my sons have been involved in the pre-college division. But just as a as a part as a person who's involved in the New York scene here, uh, it's it's really impressive. So I wanted to, you to talk about maybe all the facets of what's going on here in the jazz program uh, at the Manhattan School. Sure. Uh, well, I came here in 1992 uh, as a faculty member teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, jazz drum set, uh, and also other classes, uh, history, improvisation, and conducted a big band and combos, and mm -hmm. you know, typical um, jazz education uh, classes that we all do. Mm -hmm. And actually, we're blessed because in jazz, we can do so many things, and that helps us immensely on building a life in music and a career. Yeah, absolutely. And that isn't always the case in other genres of music. So yeah. maybe we'll talk about that as we go yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. But I came in 1992 and, um, as I said, as a faculty member. And then in 1999, I was asked to replace the director of the uh, jazz program. So um, I told the president at that time, which was Martha Stoneman, I said, Martha, I'm pretty busy. I really don't need another <laughs> job. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, between teaching here and playing and, and guest conducting and sure. doing master classes, you know, you know the, the, the routine. Uh, uh, if you're somewhat successful in this business, you know, you're pretty busy. It's always extremes, as we all know. You're either killing yourself or you're not doing anything. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so I told Martha Stoneman, who was the president at that time of the Manhattan School, I said, Martha, I said, uh, I really don't need a, 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 another job, you know. I'm, but I always had in the back of my mind, since I, I was at LaGuardia School and started, actually it was originally High School of Music and Art and Performing Arts and then became the LaGuardia School and they moved 
to uh, Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. I always had in mind, like if I ever did direct a college program of my ideas of what I would like to do. So um, she said, but Justin, we really feel that, you know, that you're the person for this job. So I said, well, Mark, I said, I would only give it consideration if we threw out the program that exists now and we start all over again. Mm. She said, that's what I want. Mm. I said, that's what you want? <laughs> well, I said, well, maybe you're yeah, the right person. Yeah, right? Maybe, maybe I'll think about this now. And, and uh, so anyway, it, it so tur it turned out that, that I was doing this. This was like on a Monday when she called me. And I was doing some workshops in Baltimore, Mar Maryland. And I was going to fly to, to Baltimore, uh, Maryland. So I went home to my wife about this. And she said, look, she said, why don't cancel the flight? And let's drive to Baltimore. And we'll talk about it. It's five mm. hours there, five hours back. And we'll come up with a decision mm. if, it's, yeah. you know, if, yeah, right. if you should do it or not. So we did that. And we decided I, I should take the, the job. And again, it was, it was simply because I'm, I'm, I could do whatever I wanted to do in the program. Right. So basically what we did was throw out that, the existing program and we put together a curriculum, which I believe is, is what a jazz program should be all mm -hmm. about, which is the emphasis on improvisation, on swing feel, on groove, mm -hmm. uh, and kind of an interdisciplinary approach to education. Um, and my philosophy of the program uh, is the complete artist musician of the 21st century. And it's one who's a performer, a composer, and a pedagogue, mm -hmm. a kind of a shared interest. Now, you might say, well, why, you know, why that? Well, it's because 100%, and I can say this, 100% of all jazz musicians who are successful, this is what we do. Mm -hmm. We play, we do some kind of writing, and we do some kind of teaching. And 100%, you go down the line, I don't care who we name, we, we can name, you know, you can name Herbie, you can name Wayne or Whit Marcellus, and Herbie does, you know, people say, well, Herbie doesn't teach. Yes, he does. Mm -hmm. He heads the, the Monk Institute. Right. He does master classes. Now, there's different, all different kinds of teaching. And, sure. of course, he writes all the time. He's writing. Yeah. And so is Wayne and, and so forth. And, and so really what that is, is it, it, it turns out to be a kind of like a, um, one who's an innovator, a creator, an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see? So it's, it's performance, composition, and pedagogy. Now, let me explain in further detail. Performance, obviously there are times when the playing is really good and, and we're out there playing. Well, if we're playing more, we're probably writing less or teaching less. Sure. But there are times when, when things are not so strong in the performance areas. So you might be writing more. Mm -hmm. And you might be writing more for various reasons. The writing might be you're writing uh, songs and tunes, either for your own band or for someone. You know, someone commissioned you. Or writing arrangements or orchestrations. Or sometimes we write method books. Or we write, uh, we write blogs, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. uh, we write for the internet. We mm -hmm. review CDs, possibly, or review artists, or write articles for magazines. So writing is not necessarily just writing tunes or songs arrangements. It could be writing reviews, as sure. I said, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. And then teaching. We all do some kind of teaching, either private lessons 
or uh, in some kind of institution or doing master classes or workshops or clinics. So everyone who is successful, and I mean 100%, this is what we do. Then you have a life in music and you have a career. Mm -hmm. And that's what I base this whole concept on here. And as I said, that translates to, to being a creator, an innovator, an entrepreneur. And that is the direction, as far as I'm concerned, with an interdisciplinary approach that, that jazz education must take. Mm -hmm. Wow, incredibly well said. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's like, especially, it's a, you're, you're a complete musician, and now, nowadays especially, I think. But I mean, this could apply at any, any generation. But of course. especially now, I think it's imperative. If you're going to have success, and, you're going to have to do all of those things. And Mike, one thing strengthens the other, too. Mm -hmm. In other words, the plane makes you a better writer. The writer, having a keener understanding of writing, makes you a better improviser and it makes you a better storyteller. Yeah, no question. You see? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and then the teaching, uh, by teaching you learn to dissect, rip, rip things apart, so it makes you a better player because you understand you're playing better. Yeah. You see? And then you put it back together, you know, and, and, and I mean, it, it's just, it, it, as I said, it, it's like a, almost like a hybrid approach to playing, an interdisciplinary approach right. to, to uh, uh, to a lifestyle, life, having a life in music and a, a career. Yeah, very well said. And uh, just just for a point of reference, one of the very cool things about New York is all the sounds of New York. And Justin was kind enough to let us shoot here uh, in his teaching drum studio. And uh, you may hear a little noise in the background. That's the one train going uptown. So it's, uh, it's the fabric of New York is everywhere. It's a great, very cool thing. Um, Justin, I want to talk about, I have a question for you that, that it's something that I, I think about a lot. When I was a student at the Eastman School of Music uh, many years ago now, they didn't have an undergraduate jazz right. major, which is the case for a lot of conservatories. They didn't have time. one when I was there either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing that I look at as I look back on what I got out of the school and my, the education there was the ensemble experience was fantastic. And I was playing in one semester, I'm playing in the orchestra one semester, and the one ensemble brass quintet in addition to playing in all the jazz groups. With the advent of the undergraduate jazz degree, um, and I don't think it's so much the case at Manhattan, and, and this is the insight I'd love to get from you, but I know at Eastman, at Juilliard, from what I hear from folks, it's very um, kind of segregated now. And if you're a jazz major, you're going to be in the jazz ensembles, and if you're a classical major, you're in the classical ensembles. And to me, the lack of cross-pollinization of, of that curriculum is a bit of a, of a disadvantage to the younger players now. I was curious as to how you felt about that, and then also what, what it's like here for the students at Manhattan School of Music. I agree, Mike, 100% with you. At the Manhattan School, again, as I said, the, this whole philosophy of the program is what I like to call interdisciplinary. And we have classes where we mix classical and jazz students together. Mm, okay. So our jazz students can play in classical ensembles if they so desire. Classical students can perform and or take classes in jazz if they so desire. Now, as far as the performance, they need to audition, but they audition for places in the ensembles, whether they're combos, big bands, or whatever, just like any jazz major would sure. or any classical major would for an orchestra or chamber music. Mm -hmm. But we have here to, to further uh, um, enhance what, what, mm -hmm. what I, if that's what we're doing, uh, uh, what I believe in. We have what we call a jazz philharmonic orchestra, which is okay. some people call it like a studio orchestra, right. which is a symphony orchestra and a big band, and we do original music 
of, uh, by our composers and or our faculty or other people um, and uh, uh, featuring either jazz or classical soloists. And of course that mixes the classical and jazz students together. I also have improv, I teach an improv class for string players mm. to talk about rhythm because the, the biggest problem with, with string players and playing our kind of music, beat oriented music, be it jazz or jazz related, groove music, whatever, is the time thing. Mm -hmm. You know, in classical music, as you know, you're a classical musician uh, as well as a jazz <laughs> musician. <laughs> Some, some would argue uh, so with the classical the side, but I appreciate your <laughs> generosity. Thank you. Well, um, uh, the biggest problem is in the rhythm. Of course, yeah. Okay? And in classical music, the conductor does this. The conductor chases. The conductor chases the melody and the harmony, and that tells the conductor where to put the time. So you have to have great time in classical music, but it's more, much more flexible. Right. In jazz, you bring all of that to the beat, as we all know. Sure. But, but we understand that as jazz musicians, but classical musicians don't, and they may understand it sometimes intellectually, but they really can't do it in the same way because they don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So I do this improv thing, and I really stress, uh, an imp improv for string players, and I really stress the rhythm thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, we come from basically a, explain the blues and and the, what we drummers call the shuffle beat mm -hmm. right which a jazz swing feel is the emotion of the as far as i'm concerned is the emotion of the blues and specifically the boogie woogie piano solo a rhythmical feel mm -hmm. so that a doodle la doodle la doodle la that's the dance right. that's jazz swing feel so we call it shuffle beat but it's jazz swing feel and what we need to learn and i mean this is even jazz students if you want to get a deeper time feel what they have to learn is that they have to graft or place all their melodies, all their improvisations, all the rhythms in direct relationship to that feel. So this business of, you know, jazz is triplet music. Well, it is, but it isn't really. It really comes from West Africa. And it's really somewhere in between the dotted eight sixteenth and a triplet feel, depending on the style, the tempo, the mood. But it's really a doodle-la, doodle-la, doodle. And you notice I said, I didn't say doodle-la, doodle. I said a doodle-la, doodle-la, doodle-la. Just like the conductor in classical music, the conductor does this. Preparation it gives the downbeat, right. and that's our a doodle a doodle a doodle a doodle a doodle a doodle, and then the music dances, and with a legato phrasing and an upbeat emphasis. So that's important for me to, to point that out to classical players. So I do that in my improvisation for string players class, as well as when I do the jazz philharmonic, mm -hmm. and then we have another ensemble. We call it we call it the um, the new art ensemble, which is a free eclectic. Uh, Iliatoric kind of uh, ensemble again, missing class, mixing classical and jazz students, mm -hmm. instrumental and vocal, mm -hmm. and we do everything. We play paintings in there. We dance. We chant. Play secondary instruments. You know, the sky's the limit. We mm. play paintings. We do poetry. Whatever. You know, we're only limited by our own imagination in that class. And then I have a chamber jazz ensemble, where we again we mix classical and jazz students, we do original compositions, and we do things like from, from the classic chamber jazz, things of like Gunther Schuller and John, uh, uh, John Lewis and all those compositions that they oh, did yeah, back sure. in the 1950s. Yeah. We do a lot of that stuff and new, new chamber works. Again, mixing classical and jazz. So I believe in that. Yeah. I believe strongly in the importance of mixing 
uh, uh, classical and jazz students together. And uh, so many of our, our classical students are very much interested in jazz, and it's becoming more so. And our jazz students are taking advantage of like uh, of classical ensembles, uh, uh, new music ensembles, and taking composition classes. Our students, our mm. jazz students, really interested in classical composition. Mm. So they're taking sitting in classes, they're taking classes in Bach, and taking classes in Stravinsky, Schoenberg, and things like. That. I mean, I think it's I think it's fantastic. That is fantastic. And yeah. I just want to say one other thing. Yeah. Through the history of, of this music, and you can relate to this, Tony Cadillac. Of course. Who, you know Tony very well, and. Tony is on our faculty, and when Tony was a student here, he came to school here. An example of what I'm saying is, he was the principal at his senior year. He was, and very few people know this. He was the principal trumpet player in the top symphony orchestra here okay. at the school. Yeah. And he was the lead trumpet player in the top <laughs> big band at the yeah. same time. Not and so he was playing that. I you got to tell Tony. <laughs> <laughs> he knows it. And I know this story. I'm probably the only guy in the world that knows that. That's good. Not surprising. And he's, and he's carried that on uh, through an incredible uh, career that career, he's had. Because he'll, he'll be uh, first on a movie score, and then he's playing right. first in Maria Schneider's band. Right. And all the, all the incredible work that he does, no, no question. Well, that actually leads me really nicely. I want to talk about the faculty here at Manhattan and also some specifics about that. But obviously, you've built a, an incredible faculty here. You've got, you mentioned Tony Cadlick, you've got Scott Wenholt, you've got Jay Anderson, one of the best bass players alive, uh, John Riley, incredible drummer, Phil Markowitz, amazing piano player, Dave Liebman, um, and I'm leaving out lots of yeah. folks, Dave yeah. Taylor, uh, you know, just tons of, and yeah. Mark Gould and all these great people from the classical side. Obviously, you have an advantage uh, being in New York that you have this incredible talent pool right. to draw from in terms of faculty. How do you look at it? Because you, you wear so many hats in addition to being a passionate musician and, and writer, and, and uh, you also have incredible administrative talents, which is a lot of people don't realize what goes into that. I don't fully realize it, but I know when you see a program develop like yours has, there's, there's administrative talents there that are, that are in, in working all the time. Um, how do you look at the, the, the role of, say, however you want to describe it, the adjunct or the part-time teacher, yeah. which has advantages and disadvantages to me? Obviously, in New York, in, in, uh, here at Manhattan, you've got all these wonderful people that we just talked about, which the students have access to. Um, on the other hand, they probably don't have a full access to it like they do to somebody who's full-time, who's there every day. Um, but I was just kind of curious how you look at it, various schools approach it in their own ways. You know, USC out in Los Angeles under the great leadership of Bob Mincer out there, they have an equally impressive faculty because they're drawing from the LA folks. Mm -hmm. um, but how do, you, how do you view that from the teacher's perspective as, as a part-time or adjunct teacher, um, and then how the students react to that? Great question. Mm. And I can answer it. Uh, Many, many different ways, but there's positive and negative to, the, to that situation. The positive thing, as you pointed out, is that you know, New York is finishing school. Mm -hmm. Okay? New York is finishing school, and I always felt that somewhere along the line, if you want to play creative music or you want to be a creative artist, you have to spend some time in New York. You got to pay some dues in New York. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't, there's always something missing in one's plane that hasn't, I can hear it. You know, there's a certain kind of time feel, a certain way of playing, especially in jazz, that is missing in, in someone's plane if they haven't 
paid any dues. Now, there's mm -hmm. exceptions to that. There's exceptions to everything. But, but generally, this is finishing school. So with that in mind, as you said, we have a pool of, of some of the finest jazz musicians, creative musicians in the world living here in New York. And, you know, everyone says, or many people say anyway, that jazz, that New York is the jazz capital of the world, and probably sure. is. And of course, people say, well, it ain't like it used to be. Well, when I first came here in the 1960s, they said it ain't like it used to be. So when was it like it used to be? It was never like it used to be. <laughs> That's all I ever hear. Today, the cats say, the cats say it ain't like it used to be. Well, when the hell was it? it wasn't. They told me that when I came here in 1960. Hey, man, what are you doing here? It ain't like it used to be. You know, so That's exactly. Right? <laughs> took the words right so, out. So right. out. So out. But anyway, to to go back to your to your question. So, with that in mind, the great thing is that the students that come here to study jazz can pretty much study with the finest jazz musicians in the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, and um, the downside to that is that. Well, I need to backtrack so you understand, or so our listeners, whatever, understand something that. Music conservatories, and generally, generally across the board, uh, music conservatories, and I'm talking about like in New York, places like the Manhattan School of Music, Juilliard, the uh, um, uh, NYU, mm -hmm. um, what other programs? I'm forgetting. I'm new, sorry. New, I should, new school. The new school, but the new school is not a conservatory, right, although, although right. it is now. Well, then they've merged with Manus. Manus, right? Yes. Right. So it is. It is. But places like that. Okay. Okay who are not attached, they're independent conservatories, who are not attached to a university, the faculty generally is all part-time. Uh-huh. You see? I'm the only person here at the Manhattan School that's full-time. Generally, the, the, the head of the programs are the, the only people that are full-time. Okay. But if a program is attached to a university, like the Eastman School of Music, that's conservatory, but it's attached to a university. Right. Or the University of Miami, which is a great jazz program, but they're attached to the University of the Frost School of Music, the classical. So then they have full-time faculty. There they have lectures, they have assistant professors, associate professors, full professors, and so forth. And so what's great about that is it gives those people jobs, mm -hmm. you know, gives those faculty full-time jobs, and uh, gives them health benefits and pension, but it also gives them stability. Mm -hmm. And they feel like they are part of the school, a part of the environment. Students see them there all the time. Students go to them, right. you know, right. with questions, and they're part of the family, right. you see? But at the conservatories that are not attached to university, again, like, like the Manhattans, the Juilliards, and, uh, and, that, and, and now the new school, I assume the new school is is part of, of uh, the Manus, uh, um, although I'm not quite 100% sure of that, but it doesn't matter, I'm getting my point across. Everyone on the faculty at those schools are all part-time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm the only one that's full-time. Now, the advantages, again, in New York, as you point out, and or LA, is because you have such great musicians, so you know it kinda, kind of works. But the problem with that is that the faculty are not, they don't buy into it. Right. in the same way, because they're in and out. They might teach one class or a couple of students, so they teach a class and they're out. So they really don't know what's going on mm -hmm. in the school. So sometimes things get confused because of that, and sometimes students want certain things from the faculty, but the faculty 
person is not around because the fact that when he comes on a Tuesday from uh, from uh, 10 to, to 12 noon. Right. I don't have a problem with the faculty doing their job. You know, a lot of times people will say, or students will ask, well, your faculty, you have all these great names. Are they ever there? Because, you know, we know they're on the road. They're here. Yeah. Our faculty are here. And in fact, when they do touring, uh, this is the great thing about our faculty. When they tour, and if they're away, like for a couple of weeks, when they come back, they make up their classes, they make up their lessons. No student ever has any problems mm -hmm. with making up their private lessons or, or classes with a, with a teacher that's been away. Mm -hmm. So that works for us, that works very well. So I don't have that problem. Where the problems exist in all the conservatories when they have all part-time faculty, if you, if you will, um, is that they really don't, they're not part of the community. They really don't know what's going on in the school. Mm -hmm. And they're not like, not, committed is not the right word because they are committed. All our faculty, I'm sure that every institution I'm talking about, the fact when they come in, they do 100% of the job. Oh, of course. The problem yeah. is they yeah. don't know what's going on in the school because they're not on the scene. Right. So that's the difference where a place like Eastman, the faculty's on the scene all the time, so they're part of the community. Right. You know, and, and they're working towards that because they know their job is there, you know, and they, that's sure. part of the thing and they want to help students and so forth. And, and a lot of times, that's where we fall short when we have this part-time yeah. uh, uh, faculty. But I'm sure it's, it's, it's both positive and negative because, yes. for instance, you know, if, you're, if you're going to school, which we both did in Rochester, you're in Rochester, not, right. you know, exactly. and that, that has a certain downside to right. it, and you have a right. very limited pool right. of people right. to pick from. And in point of fact, now Eastman doesn't even have a full-time jazz saxophone teacher. They have right. Charlie Pillow, who's amazing, right. but he goes up one day right. a week, day and a half a week. Right. Uh, so they have an actual adjunct position as well. So it's part of the economic climate, I guess, of, of, uh, of a conservatory. Of um, but I do think, you know, I, I mean, I'm great friends with Scott Winholt and Tony Cadlick. If I were a trumpet player and had access to those two sure. guys, to me, that's more valuable than any Right. practically anybody right. else I could get in the country, if not the world. Right. So, so it's, I understand exactly, I think we're on the same page yeah. with that. There's certainly pros and cons. And there's another advantage of that because of being in New York, as you said, uh, a lot of times our faculty, the people like you're talking about, or any of our faculty members, they may be looking for a certain musician, you know, a certain instrument, like a, a new drummer, a young mm -hmm. drummer, mm -hmm. or a bass player, or mm -hmm. whatever. And a lot of times our students start working with our faculty. Mm -hmm. You see, so that is the advantage, you know, of, of one of the other advantages, if you will, of being in the New York or having a faculty like we have, because you can wind up working with them or gigs, sure. you know, or, or you know, that, that kind of thing. So it helps your career. So you're not only becoming a better musician, but you're also build, building, as I always like to say, a life in music and a career. Yeah. You see, because there, there's advantages of being able to work with these. I mean, we, you know, at one point, the, the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, half of that band were all my students. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, that, that kind of cool. thing. Even Maria's band, you know, like there's like five or six of the of guys in Maria's band, Maria Schneider I'm talking about. Sure. Uh, you know, they're, they're ex-students and or faculty people. Yeah. You see, and when they need subs, the other is another thing, when they need subs, like I know you were talking about Jay Anderson before, or Tony or Scott, they'll use their students from here to go sub for them if they can't make a gig or they can't make a rehearsal. So it's great experience for our students where you can't get in a place like, yeah. you know, and I'm, look, I love Eastman School of Music. It's a great institution. Sure, sure. But, but you can't get that experience no, because it's in Rochester. Yeah. And that's the advantages of being in a city like yeah. New York, you know, the creative center of the world. But by the downside of that in New York is that sometimes the students are not mature enough. Right. 
And so they have a problem living in New York because they, they go wild, you know, when they see everything that, that's there, you know, so they, they, their, their career can, can, yeah. uh, can be, be, be over before it starts exactly. if you're not careful, you know. Exactly. I think that's always an interesting thing. I think that New York certainly offers more than any place else in the world and yeah. it's in the United States. So if you're the right person at the right level, at the right time, it can be an amazing it's experience right. being in New York and, and, and being at, at a fine conservatory in New York. Uh, you know, then there's the other school of thought that, you, you know, if you're not quite at that level and you're not ready, there's nothing wrong with being someplace else and then coming here for Absolutely. grad work or, you know, whatever it might I've be. I've had but, that. I've had that, you know, students say, J.D., they call me J.D. <laughs> J.D., we, we, we really want to come to, to New York, but we feel we're not ready for it yet or, mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, we understand there's advantages of being in New York, but either they're not ready yet, they're not either mature enough or they feel the plane isn't ready, whatever that is, and they'll go somewhere else and they come here for their master's degree. Mm -hmm. They'll do undergraduate work at another school and then, and then come to us or another school in New York uh, for their masters. By that time, they've matured as a, as a human being, they've matured as a musician, and they feel confident. I mean, you mm -hmm. gotta be calm. You can, listen, when you come to New York, you get your ass kicked. You know, <laughs> come on, man, like who's getting who? That's you know? it. one mean, thing we know for sure is that. Is it okay to say that on <laughs> yes. camera? But. Absolutely, say so whatever you want. That is the one thing you know for sure about New York. Yes. It's gonna kick your ass on, right. at, some, on, at some point and some no. level, that's, right. that's for sure. You know, how do you, you've turned out, your program is, uh, the list of alumni is, is really phenomenal. And um, how do you look at it now as an educator at the level that you're at, the top of the, of the heap, um, of all these students that are coming out of schools, not just Manhattan School of Music, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And as an educator, I always look at it like, you know, part of the job is, is teaching people about music, like you said, you know, performance, composing, pedagogy. Yeah. That's all there in the school. You know, the other part of it is, of course, we're, we're, we're preparing uh, young, ta very talented musicians for a marketplace that's, you know, at best staying level par and, and probably more co like contracting on a mm -hmm. regular basis. Mm -hmm. However, you do see people come out like, you know, Maria Schneider uh, uh, has created like, oh, it's amazing what she's created. Yeah, and absolutely. if you were to t say 30 years ago when she got out of Eastman, you know, this was going to happen, you, you know, you shouldn't do that because that's going to be impossible. She did it right. and at, the, at an incredible level. So how do you approach it as uh, at the, the top level of education in terms of turning out every year, turning out a lot of musicians into a marketplace that's, okay. that's pretty, well, pretty flooded? Again, Mike, it's a, another great question. Well, I don't sleep much, okay? So, and that's probably why. That's why. I mean, I wake up no matter what time I go to bed at night. You know, I go to, if, I, if I'm at home, I'll fall asleep on the couch at 11 o'clock. But if I'm up, you know, doing a gig, whether I come home at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm still up at 5, yeah. sometimes yeah, yeah. 4.30. And so my wife says, why, why? And I think it, a lot of it probably is because of what you're, you know, what, what you're stating here is like, I'm always worried about what are our students going to do you know, in, in, in this day and age, like, you know, as far as a career and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I do have to tell you, the way I look at it is, I, I get calls, okay? Const I mean, on a daily basis, and I'm not exaggerating. I get calls on a daily basis by parents. I get calls on a daily basis by students, if they're older students, because, you know, we have, as you point out, we have a master's degree, we have a doctorate program, so some of our master's students have been out there playing, like a lot of cats mm -hmm. in New York for the last 10 years, and they decide to come back to school to get a degree so that they can get, you know, they're tired of scuffling or, or whatever, and they're right. looking for a little stability, so they'll come back to school or get a doctorate, 
uh, degree. You don't have to be now to school for 10 years or whatever. Because most institutions today, and that's a whole other thing, are requiring a doctorate, even in jazz now, right. to get a gig, especially at a university. Back to your question before. Right. You know, at, and let me just backtrack for a second. Yeah, of course. Because at, at a conservatory, I can hire people on an adjunct basis, a part-time basis, just based upon their career. Right. You know what they do. But at a university setting, you must have a degree. And at one point it was a master's degree. But but today they are requiring doctorates at many institutions, many university jazz programs are requiring doctorate degrees. Right. So anyway, um, why am I telling you this? Uh, backtrack. Uh, um, uh, oh, regarding your students coming out into into the marketplace that might oh, be okay. coming back yes, to get yes, a, yeah. uh, right. doctor. Okay. Yeah. So, so as I said, uh, as I, would, I was just saying, I get calls every day from parents and or from students, whether they're younger students and, or older students. That's why I came, I was mm. talking about the last <laughs> doctor. They say, can you, would you tell my son, or, or, or from teachers, they'll call, you know, can you tell my son, or you can tell my student, or, or whatever that, you know, they want to go into music. Can you tell them the truth about the, you know, can you really make a living in music? Can you make a living in jazz? Yes. Yeah. I mean, immediately, you can make a living in music and you can make a living in jazz, but you got to know how to do it. Yeah. And this is what I feel is my program is geared towards that. What I call it again, what how we opened this, this talk here, this discussion today, the concept of a complete artist musician of the 21st century is one who's a performer, a composer, and a pedagogue. It's kind of like a shared interest. Sometimes it could be one-third, one-third, one-third. Most of the time it is not that. Right. If the playing is good, you're doing less writing or you're less teaching. If you're not, uh, uh, if you're not uh, playing as much, you might be writing more or you might be teaching more and then you're doing less. But you're always working, you have a career, you have a life in music. So my focus or my idea of, of a jazz musician or musician being able to make a living is if you do those three things, and, and there used to be a fallacy going back to the 1950s, but if, if you were playing, you know, the only people that taught were the people that couldn't play. Right. Well, I don't think that's ever been true, but, but certainly not now. Sure that's is, for sure. sure is not today, <laughs> because the greatest players in the world are teaching and sure. giving back. And, you know, as I said before, we can name anybody you want, and, and we can go to Wayne and, and, and Herbie and Dave Liebman here, you know, yeah. or Witten Marcellus, probably the, best, the, the biggest example of that, who's very much interested in teaching and so forth and still playing, yeah. keeping a, a major career. So going back to what I was saying, by, by having this, this threefold, this three-prong kind of program, again, as performer, composer, pedagogue, which again transfers to creator, innovator, and entrepreneur because that gives you, that allows you to, to develop ideas surrounding not only this, this career that you have, but, but uh, being aware of the business of music. Like I do workshops with my students here and talks where we talk about the music business or what it's like to have a life of music, how to carry yourself, what you have to do, what is it like to, to make a CD or what is, it, what, what is the business is like? What, what, is the, what is it like to, to protect your, your work so nobody steals your work from you? Mm -hmm. And you know, we do these kind of work or I bring in, I, I bring in lawyers, I bring in uh, business people involved in jazz from every aspect. And, and we do these master, master classes and workshops and clinics with our students to do whatever we can do to help them to understand that 
this is it, that a jazz musician is a small business person, mm -hmm. okay? You, you have to take care of yourself. Now, I don't mean business. When I say that, sometimes students or people think I'm bastardizing when I'm saying business, you know, like, you know, I'm not bastardizing it. I'm saying you are a small business person. Your business is you. Exactly. So you have to carry yourself. You have to promote yourself. You could be the greatest player in the world, but if you stay in a practice room and you never get out there, uh, nobody knows who you are. So you don't get any calls. Mm -hmm. So you have to go out there and network in a nice way, not be a pain, you know, where people <laughs> don't want to talk to you. Yeah. But people have to know who you are to hire you. And what, start, what happens is, which, which I, I sometimes call, what I call the, the bebop syndrome, which is <laughs> cats, like, they don't get calls for gigs, so they get very negative. Right. And they get dark, and they get bitter, and they get angry, and then less and less people come, so they never work anymore. And then they go around thinking to themselves or telling other people, oh, man, this cat can't play at all. He can't play. Man, he can't play, can't play. I play rings around him. You know, and, and why am I not working? Oh, that cat, he's like, he's a business person. That's why. And it's not that. It's because the cat that's, that's become bitter or negative is not working because that's exactly what they are. Nobody wants to hire them. Yeah. Now, they can be great players, but if you can't function, if you can't carry yourself, nobody will hire you. I mean, you, we know that from, of course. from the, yeah. the music business. If, if people, you get dark or negative, people don't want to hang with people like that. They, yeah. want, to hang, so they want to hang with people who are positive, yeah. you know, and on fire and play well and, and have, have a good feeling, you know, and all that stuff that's important to the music. It's, I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's life, you know, like you want to be around people that make you feel good. Absolutely. And of course, playing with and, people make and, you feel good. and playing is a big part of that. And I, mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, I think that that's one of the uh, distinct advantages of, of your getting back to your faculty situation. You're getting these guys who are, can give you, I mean, Tony Cadlick, are you kidding me? He's on everything in New York and he can give you insight into how to be a professional that you will never get. Right out of someplace out outside of the realm. But uh, yeah, I always, not to get into my thing, but uh, I always, when I do clinics, I always say it's, I'm Mike Davis, the trombone store. And my job is to, okay, yes, uh, the product that you're selling is a lot of it. You're right. playing is a lot of it, but customer service is a lot of it. Right. You know, how clean is your shop? You know, or do you show up on time with, the, you know, well-groomed or whatever it might be? Uh, it's like, you open a flower shop and there's four other flower shops right next to you. Okay, well, what's going to make you different from those other right. four flower shops? So, I, that's exactly yeah. what I point out to my student. I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be stepping on you. No, but, no. But, 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 yeah. You know, I'll tell the students and, you know, I'll say, look, we have four corners here of our school. If there were four pizza parlors or four pizza restaurants, right. and they're all in competition with each other. Now, why should I go to that pizza corner on the north corner as, as opposed to the south corner? What does that person have? Well, it's exactly what you just said. Maybe the sauce is better. Yeah. Or maybe the care is better. Maybe the place is cleaner. Maybe the environment is like hipper and it, it, it's welcoming yeah. to you. Yeah. So you're going to go to that pizza parlor instead of the one, the pizza bar on the north side instead of the one on the south side because of that. And it's exactly what we are. We are small business people and our business is ourselves yeah and we have to be aware of that and if we do all of that and of course you got to back it up with you know being right. able to play and handle and and if you're doing master classes you do master class that's the other thing is you know i'm here i'm talking about performer composer pedagogue but all those have to be on that same level right yeah you see when when we all the playing has come first because if you can't play then you know then it's all over you know you got to be able to play because you don't know no, you don't know where it's at if you can't play. So playing is number one. But then after that, 
all that other other stuff comes into being. For know, sure, for sure. Let's um, let's. I just want to look back on a couple of your incredible accomplishments, but. Uh, you mentioned LaGuardia High School, and uh, very proud that my uh, oldest son uh, who's a, uh, has gotten a lot out of his association with you and the Grammy Band and here at the Manhattan uh, School of Pre-College Division. But uh, uh, he graduated from LaGuardia, and uh, it's an incredible, or one, probably the finest arts uh, high school in the nation, if, if certainly one of the top, that's for sure. Um, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, the alumni from there, we were talking earlier, from Marcus Miller yeah. to, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, well, you name it, but uh, that, that's a whole other story. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was, <laughs> you could do a whole I'm, interview on that yeah, alone, but I just yeah, wanted you to I be able to yeah. touch on that. Okay, well, I was in, I was in the Marine Band. I was the White House drummer, and at that time, uh, Sammy Nestico, you know, the great arranger, trombone, Sammy Nestico was the leader of the band, the White House. And so I played with all these people. I mean, I played trio with Duke Ellington. Oh, wow. I played okay. with Dave Brubeck. I played okay. with Sinatra. I played with Barbara Streisand. I played every Broadway show that was on Broadway. At that time, they would all come to the White House okay. and do performances. So I met a lot of conductors and contractors. And so my goal was to always to come to New York. So through, through making these connections, that's how I wound up in New York. Of course, some of them were fulfilling for me and helped me when I got here. And others <laughs> forgot who I was, but that's a whole other story. But anyway, I had a wife and, and two, two children and no, uh, no job. I just came to New York to be a freelance musician. So... Uh, and which I was doing. In fact, the first first thing I ever did in New York was a record date. Mm. So crazy. Wow! Yeah. Start at the top. It was the first, yeah, it was the first game, and that was because someone from Eastman. Well, you know, my connections from going to Eastman School of Music. He was like a contractor in New York, so I had called him, and and he said, Justin, he said, look, we're doing it. We're doing a record date today. I I need. You want to go? Yeah, man. You know. So anyway, so my point is that. You know, I was working, but you know, there were good times and bad times. So I wanted to get some stability. So I started teaching privately. And then one of my friends was teaching at the, at, at that time was the high school music and art. Right. Okay, that was before the LaGuardia School. And uh, high school music and art and school performing arts, the same school in two different locations. Okay. One was uptown, one was in midtown. Okay. That's the fame school. Right. You know, the, right. it's the fame movie, television series. So anyway, so my friend who was teaching percussion, now, in addition, well, maybe I should state that. You know, I never took a jazz lesson in my life. Mm. Everything I learned from playing jazz was from copying from records in the jam session and practicing. Right. Playing with records, copying from records. Old and, school. And I, that's I, it. I yeah, developed the whole cool. curriculum yeah. from that. I don't know if that's good or bad. but, but That's anyway, where the music comes from, so it's a, it's <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah. So anyway, so my friend at the High School of Music and Art said, look, I'm leaving would you be interested in teaching here? And of course I said, well, wait a minute, I'm a player, man. I'm not a teacher, you know, back to that. Yeah. So I realized I, I could still do my gigs because the teaching was from 9.30 to 12.30 in the morning. So I was free, if I was doing a Broadway show, I was free to do the show, or if I was doing a gig at night, I was free, you know, and, and I've never been a, a great sleeper, so I don't need to <laughs> sleep that much, you know. So anyway, so I took that job. And I'll kind of try to go fast here, but because it's a really a long story. But I took that job at the high school of music and art, and so I was there part time for three hours a day teaching percussion, jazz drums and percussion mallets and timpani percussion ensemble that kind of stuff. So while I was there uh, in the spring of that year, the chairman of the department said, "Justin said you're doing a great job," and I was having I was having fun. Mm -hmm. um, you're doing a great job. I said, thanks. And he said, we want to offer you a full-time job. And that's when I said, well, hey, man, I'm, I'm a player. You know, I don't teach. <laughs> so he said, well, what will it take to get you here full-time? 
So I'm, I'm telling you the absolute truth now. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And I said, let's start a jazz program. If you start a jazz program, I might be interested. He looked at me and said, are you crazy? This is a high school. And I told him, I said, oh, yeah? I said, you told me this is a specialized high school. If it's a specialized high school, you should have a jazz program. And this was the beginning of jazz education in, in the colleges and things. This is when sure. all the schools were starting. Yeah. You know? And so, so uh, and believe me, I didn't even know what I was talking about. I never <laughs> taught anything, you know, outside of playing the drum set and you know, playing gigs. So anyway, he said, okay, you know, after a period of time, was, and he said, well, let me think about it. He said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, well, you have a dance band here. Let's turn that dance band into a real jazz ensemble. Mm. You know, he said, what are you talking about? You know, they were playing like Glenn Miller and stuff. And they, I said, well, let's play some Thad Jones charts. Let's get some, all these cats were my friends, you know, Thad and uh, guys that were writing at that, and Don Menza and people like that. So I said, let's get some of their charts. Yeah. Play them. yeah. And by the way, the level of playing was really high. Yeah. You know, yeah. Was, at that time, it was as high as any music conservatory today. You know, yeah. It was really high level because everybody was studying privately and right. you know, it was a whole different scene in New York, you know, yeah. as far as in the, in the education, the public school education. They had feeder systems, you know, and they, they, music started in the elementary school and junior high. By the time they got to, to high school and especially at a, a specialized high school like the high school music and art or performing arts, they could play. I mean, they were playing the level mm -hmm. of college plan. So anyway, he said, uh, so what are you going to do when this? Well, I said, let's turn this thing into a jazz ensemble. I said, but if you're going to have a jazz program, you have to have improvisation classes. Now, man, I, I don't. Again, I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> I can tell you that. But I, I, I've got ideas. I have some pretty good ideas sometimes. So I said, but and this is where I got the idea of an interdisciplinary approach that I've applied here to the Manhattan School. I said. But not only do you have to have improv classes, you have to have combos, you have to have a history class so that people, you know, one thing bounces off the other. Mm -hmm. So we said, wait, 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 it's going to take time. <laughs> but anyway, so, so we, saw we had the big band and then we had the combo improv. I spent that whole summer, I got to tell you this, this story because I've never told this on, on record. Yeah, but I gotta, this is, for me, it's a, it's a no, funny it's a, story. It's great. So I, I, it's summertime comes now. I'm going to start teaching in September, and this is like June. Now, I got to teach an improv class. Now, I never took improvisation classes. Everything I know, I learned from the records, again, from copying. And, um, and you know, when I was in high school, I used to listen to all these great records, and I could still sing back solos. Mm -hmm. I can sing back Clifford Brown solos and, and Bird solos, you know, the bebop and hard boppers of that period, Horse Silver. I mean, I know, I memorized them without ever writing them down, mm -hmm. just from repeated listenings. Mm -hmm. It would wear out the record, you know, and <laughs> buy another one. And I, I still, to this day, can sing those solos from when I was 14 years old. So anyway, I said, well, I learned to play from copying from the records. So let me go back to the records and figure out what the hell they're doing. So I, at that time, uh, Charlie Parker and Dizzy and those cats, you know, those beboppers were my guys. So I started listening to Bird and, and, and Dizzy, and I couldn't figure I mean, I knew I could sing what they were playing, but I didn't understand it. You know, I mean, I, I had taken theory classes at Eastman, but not anything in yeah. jazz, you know. I didn't have it's, any. It's complicated you know, harmony yeah, and yeah, counterpoint right. that's going on there. Right. So yeah, it's very uh, the so, highest. Uh, so I started listening to different cats, and I listened to Clifford Brown. And all of a sudden, Clifford made sense to me. I could hear it in Clifford's playing. I couldn't mm. hear it in Bird in the same, as far as under, an understanding. Mm. And that's when I realized that jazz was a language. And, you know, I, I could possibly be the first player 
I never said that, that jazz is lame. I'm not saying I am, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, I realized that jazz was a language. Mm -hmm. And it's like the study of Latin, where you have the root word, you have a prefix, and you have a suffix. Now, let me explain what I'm saying. I realized that what Clifford Brown was doing, he was playing a scale, was a major scale with a flatted seventh. Now, I didn't know at that time that people, it wasn't called, you know, today we call that a bebop scale. Mm -hmm. At that time, some people call it a seventh scale, but I never heard any of that stuff. And I realized that this scale is where everything else came from. And I realized that what Clifford did, he took that scale and he played it in a descending fashion. He played it eight, seven, flat, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, which we call a bebop scale today, mm -hmm. right? Do ba di da bu ba di da bao. Do ba di da ba, right? Okay. So now I realize where's the vocabulary coming from? How are we going to, you know, I said, well, wait a minute, that's the root word. By changing the front of that, it's like the prefix. It's just like language. It's just like you study Latin or any other language. So I realize if you go eight, which is like one, one, two, one, seven, flat, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, you have a word. Mm -hmm. You see? And if I go one, two, three, two, one, seven, uh, one, two, three, uh, what did I just say? One, two, three, two, one, uh, uh, seven, flat, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. One, two, three, four, going up the scale, scale degrees, coming down, coming down all the way. Mm -hmm. You have words. Mm -hmm. You see? And then you can do with the back the same thing. It's like the suffix, the back of the thing. And there's a, like, with the endings of a phrase. So it no longer sounds like, it's like, so you read, do body double body bow. Do body double body body. Do body double body. Oh, and then I realized that by changing the back, you go, do do body double body double body bow. Do body double body body double body bow. Now, do dee. Then I figured there's a rhythm in there. Down, do dee. Da do ba do booty dow. Do ba do booty dow. And I realized that's a word. That's an ending. Do ba di da boo bow. Right? And then one two one seven flat seven two six five. So it's boo uh, boo ba di da boo ba di da boo. And and anyway, we put it on. I would have the students play. Put it on on a blues scale on on a blues form. So and it would come out. You know, solo would sound like just using that bebop thing. The solo would sound. Bo ba do bo de da bo be ba do la bo bo de do bo bo de da bo ba ba do la bo bo de da um da um da um de da Jackie McLean used to always put a rhythmic delay um da um da bo de da bo bo de da bo de da um da um da bo de da bo bo and then Clifford used to put a delay on the first or the third beat and he would say da do de do do ba do bo de da da bo de so that's and that's how I put together this whole improv thing. It's like crazy. Wow, it's it's great that you uh, were able to to frame it in that capacity. I'm sure your students were able to grasp that because you you had an understanding of it yes, from that. I broke you know, it down from. I said, look, this is a scale. This is the major scale. Now it has a flat at seven. And I'd sing, let's play this. And you only have to know that in three on three chords to start. You know, the tonic, the super tonic, the, the, the dominant. You know, the one, right. four, five. Sure. Okay, and so I have them play, and then I would show them these things, and I and then some of the things worked, some of the things didn't work in the improv classes, and some of the things worked, and some of the things that didn't work, I always hung on to my notes, and then later years, as I got to be a better musician, some of that stuff did work, but I just didn't know how to weave it. <laughs> just didn't go right. far. Well, it's great. I mean, you're, there's no question you were a pioneer. Uh, 
both on the college level and the high school level, building that program. Let's talk a little bit about this, the Grammy Band, which I think is a phenomenal program. And, and once again, my son was fortunate to be a, your bass player a couple years back. And uh, what an experience for it's an all. I'm going to let you talk about it, but it's an all-American high school band. The, the, the finest high school players are picked. They go to Los Angeles. They get to rehearse with all these great musicians, yourself and all the great people that come by and work with them. They play on the Grammys. They, they record in Capitol Studios where Frank Sinatra and you know, hundreds of artists have recorded. It's just, a, I think it's a phenomenal experience. And uh, my youngest son, who's also in the pre-college uh, here, fine young trumpet player, he's getting ready to hopefully get in. So it's like, it's really developed uh, into a great thing. And I know I've gone online and looked at all the, everybody's auditions and it's, it's a huge, yeah. huge deal now. And to get into it, is, it's an honor, no question. But anyway. Tell us about the Grammy Band and how, where that came from and what, how, what you're doing with it. Okay, well, actually, the Grammy Band, that is, as it's called today, the roots really go back to 1979, and it was the uh, McDonald's mm. Jazz Ensemble, mm -hmm. the McDonald's Hamburgers. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you look at it that way, um, although my, my, my boss at, at the Grammys don't like to look at it that way. But if you look at it that way, it's the longest running jazz program in the history of the United States. Mm. It goes back to 1979 and we're at 2015 now. Yeah. And it's been consistent. And it, became, it was the McDonald's program from, from then uh, until uh, uh, 1992. Okay. And that's when the Grammys took it over, 1992. Okay. So from 79 to 92 was the McDonald's band, and then it became the Grammy. And by the way, when it was the McDonald's band, you know, you were talking before about my students at, at uh, high school music and art and performing arts. In that band was Marcus Miller, Omar Hakim, Kenny Washington, you know, the likes of, the, I mean, Steve Jordan was <laughs> incredible. <laughs> you know, well, you look, it was a period, just going back to that, to that music and art thing for, for a minute, it was a period of 10 years there that was just unheard of. Yeah. Uh, as far as musicianship at the high school music yeah. and yeah, yeah. arts. But anyway, back to the McDonald's. So anyway, they played in the, in the McDonald's band in the earlier days. And then in 1992, it became the Grammy band. And everything you're saying is absolutely on the money. And what has happened in the last, uh, I would say the last six, seven years, the level of playing, the maturity level of the musicians is just in. Incredible. Mm -hmm. And your, your son knows that. Your son was maybe three years ago, I think, right? Two years uh, ago. Yeah. Let's see. He's a sophomore now. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. And I'm a great player, too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and I'm not saying this for the camera. It's true. <laughs> I know you would appreciate that. I, I, it's I, I true. agree. I think he's a, he's a fine young talent there. So. He is, and he's going to develop and develop and get better and better. But my point is that the level of playing, it's just, and I've been doing this maybe longer than anybody mm -hmm. around. Uh, and the last six years or so, the level of playing is ridiculous. And not only of instrumental proficiency skill level, but the level of understanding of the music mm. and all the styles. I mean, they could play, you know, I play like, like Benny Carter kind of thing, and they're playing the shit out of that stuff. They understand it. I mean, they're playing it, <laughs> you know, and we ain't fooling around kind of, not only playing the charts, Right, but the improvisation and the style. Right. You know, and then we turn around and play like a Herbie, her, 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 a Herbie chart, or you know something like that, and 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 they play that, play that official. Yeah. You know, turn around and play the Eye of the Hurricane or, or you know One Finger Snap, and play it. I mean, play it right in the style and 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 in the soloing and so forth. 
you know, of course, you know, they're still young kids. And we were talking, we're talking about kids, their ages anywhere from 13, 14 to 18, 19. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty young. Yeah. But they are playing so mature for their age. Like, it's unheard of. It's scary. And then back to your question before, you know, what are these players going to do? <laughs> and this is, I talk to them when we're at rehearsals. We, we're, we're together. We spend 10 days together in the Grammy band. And I get to know that I know everything about these kids in mm -hmm. 10 days. In fact, I know things about them that their parents don't know <laughs> because I see things, I see them in action. What happens <laughs> at the Grammy stays at the Grammys. <laughs> but but it, it's, it's, it's just amazing, amazing, um, you know, the, the level of understanding, the yeah. level of performance for their age. Yeah. You know, they're not mature like somebody who's 30, 35 years old. I mean, they lack that maturity. Of course. But, but it's scary and it can fool you. You know, it yeah. can fool you. If you're in another room, you hear them playing, and you're playing those chairs. I, I doubt that anybody would say that, you know, there's a bunch of high school kids playing. Yeah. I don't think you'll ever hear that. Well, it's great. Yeah, I mean, so. it's, it's a wonderful uh, opportunity for them. I mean, it's, I, I, it's yeah. hats sure. off to you for creating that and, and for doing that and doing it at such a great uh, level every year. It's just well, remarkable. I, I just want to say one thing that and you have to say where, you know, it's important that I, I state certain things of significant importance. When, it, when the McDonald's program started, it was started, the McDonald's jazz program in 1979, it was started by Clem de Rosa. Right. The educator. Sure. Clem was the leader and I was his assistant. Oh, okay. And he wow. was there for two years. And, wow. I was, and then I took it over like in the third year of the program. So I've been in charge since probably 1981. Okay. 80 or 81. I don't remember exactly. Clem, but I, a... I, I need to say that because oh, I that's think great. that's important. What an amazing yeah. educator he was yes. and a great person. I, I was yeah. fortunate to do a couple things for uh, Dennis de Blasio down right. at Rowan with, uh, sure. with Clem. And I felt like, I, I mean, I was supposed to be giving the clinic with Clem. I was taking the clinic, yeah. but just yes. listening to him yeah. and uh, all the, the great direction he was giving everybody. But um, let me ask you about the White House. I find this fascinating. The official White House drummer. So I, this was- They couldn't find anybody <laughs> else, so they took me. You know? <laughs> So you, this was under the Johnson administration or yeah, I was Kennedy? Kennedy and Johnson. Okay, you got a couple of couple yeah, of fun stories you can tell oh, us. I'm boy. sure you got more than a couple. <laughs> oh. uh, well, I went in. I graduated from Eastman. I was getting drafted in the Vietnam War. Okay. And I said, Well, wait a minute. You know, like I did. I didn't go. I didn't study all this music to go shoot guns. You know? Yeah. So I. So I. One of my teachers it was John Beck, who was recently sure. retired yeah. from the Eastman School. And anyway. He was in the Marine Band, and he said, you know, there's an opening in the Marine Band, but the, the great thing is that not only are they looking for a, a, a percussionist, but they're looking for a percussionist who's a jazz drummer who can play, like, in the dance band mm -hmm. and play the shows and all, of the, all the acts that, that happen at the White House. So, okay, so I auditioned, I got the gig. So I wound up playing at the White House, and at the White House, I was there with uh, Kennedy at first, and in fact, I really never ever marched in my life. I, I need to tell you this. Uh, I never marched in my life because I was always, you know, busy. I, I mean, I never went to high school that didn't have a marching band, and, and I wasn't in the military. And when you go to the Marine Band, you don't do basic training. There's no, you just go and play. It's like a, Oh, really? You don't yeah, have to go through basic training? No, there's no nice. basic. It's like oh, a civil great. service job. Oh, okay. It's like getting a gig in a symphony orchestra Okay, is basically what it is. So I didn't know anything about marching or, or anything like that, anything about the military. But... Um, I was I went I went to the Marine Band in, in, in July and I playing all these things at the White House. And I played in the concert band too, but I played all these parties at the White House. In fact, I played trio with Jackie up in the residence 
in, in the Kennedy residence, which is upstairs, uh -huh. you know, um, the Truman, when Margaret Truman used to play piano, when, Tr when President Truman was there, the piano was still there, and we played jazz trio <laughs> background to two couples, John Kennedy, Jackie, and Senator Edward Dirksen and his wife, and he was the Senate Majority Leader at that time. Oh, wow. They were sitting in the dining room. We were like, you know, <laughs> like in the other side of this room in the corner playing background jazz. I'm talking about, I mean, we're stretching. Okay. You know, stretching. This is what the Kennedy Kennedys were really hip, you know, and, and so we're there playing trio, and, you know, I'm not, not, not bashing or anything, like, you know, playing brushes and things <laughs> like that, you know, I mean, because, you know, they're carrying on the conversation. Yeah. But so, they're talking, well, anyway, let me backtrack. So we get there, and because of White House clearance, you always had to get to the gig two hours before. Okay. So I'm setting up, and, and this is when John Kennedy and Caroline, they were kids. John John was crawling around. <laughs> you know, he was crawling. So I'm setting up the drum, drums, and, and John John's crawling around my bass drum. I'm kicking, get out of here. He's you know? <laughs> like, got in the bass drum. I'm trying to set up my floor tom-tom. He's under the floor tom-tom. Like, I'm kicking, get out of here. I'm making, really, making sure nobody sees me. You know? Boom, I'm kicking him. Get out of here, kid. So anyway, all of a sudden, Jackie comes running up the stairs. She had been out shopping. She said, you know, we're setting up. And she said, what are you doing here? I said, well, you know, set up. And she said, oh, I'm so late. She said, and she had what I called at that time dungarees. It was the first woman who wasn't a farmer ever to wear jeans. <laughs> wow. And she wore, she wore uh, designer jeans. And she had the, the designer like blouse and jeans. And I had never seen a woman with jeans on that outside of picking beans at a farm. Right. You know, or, 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 you know. Wow. And, and, um, so she, she said, oh, my God. So she went running off. She went running off. I mean, that's a, you know, a White House story. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, and see, they were, they were personal? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, the, Kennedy, yeah. Well, come on. We were talking. I mean, I never hung out with him. I, I didn't have a beer with him or anything. But he said, <laughs> hey, how you doing, man? What's going on? You, you happy with what's happening? You know, that kind of stuff. Wow. You know, I talked to him many times. So anyway, that, that, that one story. So we, I set up the drums, and the kids, the nanny came, got the kids, went away, and we're playing. And. And we played that whole night, and, and you know, as I said, like playing jazz, like, you know, any tempo, any tunes, and, and thing while they were, like, like, I'm watching, you know, we're playing, and you know, there's the president of the United States, his wife, Senator, <laughs> you know, like, in the, you know, that kind of thing. That is a great story, very cool. But then Kennedy got shot, you know, mm -hmm. that whole of course. assassination thing that happened, and that's where I, the first time I ever marched. And, um, you know, that scene, uh, which I'm sure you've seen it, maybe you don't recall now, but there's the riderless horse in the cortege for mm -hmm. the funeral. There's mm -hmm. the riderless horse, and then behind there, there was like drummers playing the cadences. Mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. That first drummer behind the riderless horse, that's me. Oh, wow. And so Phil Schaap says, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but Phil Schaap says that that's one of the 15 most important pictures in the history of the United States. Mm. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I don't know if it, but that was sad. That yeah. was really oh. sad. But that was the only time I ever marched, and, but, but it's like a famous scene, you know, from, yeah. from because that's one of the great tragedies. We've had probably two major tragedies in the United States, and yeah. the first was the Kennedy assassination, the second was obviously 9-11. Yeah, yeah, no question. Um, well, so, let's, let's yeah. the, as long as we're talking about the, uh, the, the amazing people you've gotten to work with, uh, I know you've, had, you've worked with so many art, great artists, and you've, and you've had so many great artists here that you work with on a regular basis and had as guest artists. 
Um, if you could name a handful of them that come to mind, not to leave anybody out. You but mean it, that I played with personally? Or, well, or, either, or? either. Just that, that really touched you in like just memorable artists that you've worked with here as a guest artist or, or that you've played with or just okay. a couple that come to mind that, uh, that really left an imprint on you. Okay. Well, the first really, well, when I was in Rochester, I started playing with Chuck Mangione mm. and all those, I became, I replaced uh, Roy McCurdy in that band. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then uh, Vinnie Ruggiero was on some of the people might know that name. He was Vinnie Ruggiero's incredible drummer, yeah. incredible player. And few people know him. I mean, musicians know him, but few people know him because he had a, somewhat of a difficult, challenging life. Mm. But he was like an incredible player. So I would go in and out with him as Chuck's drummer. Mm -hmm. And that was before Chuck became like a household name, so to speak, as mm -hmm. a star at that, at that point. But anyway, I was playing with Chuck. So that was memorable because... In that band at that time was, were two different saxophone players. One was Joe Romano, mm -hmm. who's a great yeah, tenor, I worked with Joe also. Player, yeah. great player. Great. And the other was Sal Nistico, a great Sal Nistico, boy who could play time and play. You talk about playing time and play, and playing phrasing and articulation. Yeah. Oh boy, oh boy, could that cat play and yeah. play fast and play fast, but with men like in there. I mean that that was memorable for me, um, and that whole period, and then. Play with people at the same time, like like Don Mensa and, and Sammy Noto. Sammy Noto was another great oh yeah, great trumpet, trumpet player, player, sure, yeah, great trumpet player. And again, all musicians know him, and mm -hmm. never really had probably big recognition of the general public, but musicians know him. Incredible player. Mm -hmm. And then I I played with Duke Ellington at the White House. I played trio with Duke Ellington, mm -hmm. uh, and that was an experience because he was really hard to play with. You know, really? it was hard to play time with. Him. Mm. Really high because he played different kind of time. You know, you know, you hear about you know great a great piano player he is, and he is and yeah. you know, was, and so forth. I mean, you know, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Yeah. But to play time like we play like in a trio was really rough because he played all that umpa thing and his he was more like a painter, mm. you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, interesting playing yeah. that kind. Of, he was difficult to play. It was hard to play bass and drums with him. Hmm. You know, people have you know asked me about that, and it really was challenging. Wow. And, and again, I don't mean that in any derogatory. No, no, of course. You know, I know in any derogatory, I have yeah. the greatest respect for. Of course. But, you know, you talk about White House stories. I could tell you a quick one about Ellington if you want to. Please. Want to yeah, we'd love it. We would play at the state dinners. And uh, when, when Johnson was president, we would play at the state dinners. And the state dinners, everybody came with tails in those years, gowns and tails, you know, the guests. Mm -hmm. And Duke Ellington, Johnson loved Duke Ellington. So every state dinner, now, state dinners are for officials. Mm -hmm. to, you know, with people that come from other countries, mm -hmm. you know, state dinners, mm -hmm. heads of state, you know, and then there'd be always parties, a show, and or dancing. And we did all of that stuff. As I said, Sammy Nestica was the band leader <laughs> of our dance band. And we played, oh, I can tell you another thing. <laughs> we played all those Basie charts, you know, those early Basie straight ahead. Of course, and, yeah. And all those charts. We yeah. played those for dancing at the White House. Wow. But they were different, they were different names to them. And, and, uh, and then when Sammy started writing for Basie, he, you know, kind of spruced up them, the charts a bit and then changed the names like Basie Street. But we used to play all of that. It goes to show you how things have changed through the years. <laughs> all those original, those first two albums that Sammy did for, for Basie were charts that pretty much that we used to play for wow. dancing at the White House. Incredible. Uh, but what was I saying before? <laughs> about uh, Duke Ellington, about Johnson liking uh, Duke Ellington. Oh, yes. Okay. So Johnson loved, uh, uh, like, Loved Duke Ellington. So now Duke comes in. He would come in. Everybody had black tails, right? Duke Ellington would come in powder blue 
Nice. <laughs> and with a, with a ponytail. Now, I had never seen a ponytail on any man <laughs> except George Washington. You know, that was before it became fashionable. You know, I'm talking about before the Beatles and before, yeah, you know, yeah. all that stuff of the, the 60s and 70s. He had this little ponytail with his powder bloom. And when he walked in a room, and now I'm telling this is the truth. In fact, while I'm telling the story, I, I see the scene in front of me. <laughs> he walked in the room, all the women flocked to him. He was like a magnet. Women loved him. Yeah. He would attract women. I mean, they just love hanging with him. So all the men would be in one corner thing, and another corner of the White House. You, you'd have Duke with all everybody's wives. <laughs> so it, 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 it's incredible. But anyway, he, has, he is legendary for his appeal to the uh, to right. the ladies. Right. So that's, uh, but, but that thing, even of, at the White House, he's going to do that. <laughs> but powder blue tails. Everybody else black tail. Powder blue with a little. <laughs> it's great. Um, That's awesome. Okay, other people that uh, I played there with Dave Brubeck. Dave was a wonderful, wonderful person. Mm. Um, uh, Phil Woods. Mm. Uh, I always had a good time playing with Phil Woods, sure. who just died recently. Yeah, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. I just lost him. Yeah. Uh, played with Stan Getz. Stan mm. Getz was always powerful for mm. me. Uh, again, he was tough. Yeah. Tough, but, but as a player, it was something. Uh, Jerry Mulligan. Dizzy. I played with Dizzy Gillespie. Mm hmm. Jerry Mulligan. Um, I'm thinking of people that stand out, you know. Uh, well, that's certainly a roster of people that would stand yeah, out. That's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah. And you continue to uh, to have great standout people here in Manhattan. I see every year I get the uh, roster of folks that you're having yeah. in here, and it's yeah. so it's great. It's part of what makes a, a program so great. Well, Justin, I feel like I got about eight more questions I could ask you. We'll have to do another. We'll have to do a follow-up interview because there's another so much time. great stuff to talk about. Um, I kind of always like to close out our interviews with asking all the great artists uh, that we've been fortunate to have just to, to give advice to young people. And you, through everything that you've said about the program here, you've given that advice. But if you were to truncate that down and, and somebody watching and saying, you know, I want to go into maybe jazz, but jazz education maybe, if you could, if you could kind of just capsulize it into a real uh, short thought, what, what piece of advice do you, would you give to uh, young people that are maybe on their way to Manhattan School of Music or wanting to get in here or all yeah, of the above? I think a few things I could say. One is make everything in life feel like a groove. Mm -hmm. Make everything in life feel like a groove. Now, the nice thing is that a, like a student that would come to a Manhattan School of Music or any top-notch program, they know what a groove is. You know, sometimes you go to other places and students or musicians think they know what a groove is, but they really don't. Mm -hmm. But at an institution like the Manhattan School of Music or any other major institution, they know what a groove is. So I tell students, you know what a groove is. Take that feeling now and apply that to everything that you do in mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. The way you carry yourself, how you treat other people, how you treat things that you own. Just make everything feel like a groove mm. in life mm -hmm. and, and you'll be happier for it and life will work for you. Mm -hmm. And I also tell students, no one can take your dream away from you. You give it up. Mm. No one can take your dream. If you really want something, you can get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can think you really want something and then you say, well, I could have done this, I could have done that, I could have been this, I could have been that, but it was that guy, it was his fault, he took it away. From... 
Yeah. The only fault is if, if, if you don't realize your dream is yourself. Yeah. If you want something, it will happen. If you really want something, nobody can take your dream away from you. And I, yeah. tell, I tell students everywhere, wherever I am, whether the Manhattan School of Music students and or workshops I do, you know, I do these things all over the world. And that's, that's what I And all I can say is thank you for being who you are. Well, Justin, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule. You're the hardest working man in jazz so, education, that's so for sure. Yeah. And uh, we really appreciate your time and all the great uh, thoughts that you had. And uh, um, we appreciate you guys checking in today. And we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.